our current study began a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago was Trinity Sunday, which is a, um, I don't know if you, you wouldn't call it a holiday, right? You might call it a holy day, I guess, so a holiday, uh, celebrated by the Western, a lot, of, a lot of groups within the Western Church. And so we've been talking about the doctrine of the Trinity since then. Uh, I've been using as my guide Gregory of Nazianzus. Gregory of Nazianzus is uh, known as one of the Cappadocian fathers. He is one of the giants in the history of the doctrine of the Trinity. And the Trinity is a complex subject, and so I thought if we're going to discuss it, uh, let's not talk about me. Let's in my thoughts. Let's talk about Greg's thoughts. Right? And so, uh, if anybody would like to you know, check my homework, uh, you can find, if you just like Google, Gregory of Nazianzus' five orations. Right? Uh, you, will, you will find the ones. Now, there are, he wrote many orations. Right? Uh, these are just five of them, but they're particularly famous because these are five orations about the Trinity. If you want a physical book to order, I would totally recommend this. Uh, it's a great little volume. It's from the Popular Patristic series, number 23. It's, it's, a, it's a good series. I've got a number of volumes from it. And so it's got the, the five theological orations plus two letters he wrote. And the two letters are related thematically, subject-wise, to, to here. And so pretty much everything we've been discussing is all Gregory. It's, it's not me. I'm just reading, digesting and presenting back. And that'll be the same today. Though, uh, if we get to it today, there's one thing that I'm, I'm going to attempt to disagree with Gregory on, not in his ultimate, not in his belief, but in how he gets to the solution. I don't think it's quite right. But we'll, we'll see. And I'll let you judge to see if I'm right, or if Gregory's right. So, Gregory, just to give you the dates... Um, he was he lived from AD 330 to 390. These particular things were probably written around 380, about the time where the Nicene Creed, as we know it, was was written. And so, and he was in he was in very much involved in that because he was at that Second Ecumenical Council. He was actually leading it for part of the Ecumenical Council. So he's very much in all of that. And so. This, what we're discussing today, the arguments we're going to be talking about today, you know, roughly 1,600 years old or so. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about these real quick. We've, we've been discussing uh, the contents of the first oration weren't really about the Trinity, not so much. It was actually a discussion of theology. And basically he, what he was saying is when you're going to do the act of theology and talk about heavy things like the Trinity, there's some things to keep in mind. Uh, first of all, theological argumentation is not for amusement. All right? We might find pleasure in doing so, but we're not doing this for fun. All right? This is not a, this is, don't, don't look at it as, as happy, happy fun time. It is not for all times and all places. All right? And all people even. It's a very serious thing, all right? We should always be in the habit of contemplating God, right? That should be something we do all the time, whether that's in worship or in prayer or in fellowship or in theology. We should always be contemplating God, but we shouldn't necessarily be doing the 
hard logical work of some aspects of theology all the time. That, that's, that's not something we should necessarily be doing. And it's not necessarily for all audiences. Uh, in the sense of, like when he's arguing, he, he was basically, a lot of his components, or excuse me, components, opponents, were taking doctrines and arguments about the Trinity and doing them in public, in front of everybody, and, and making a big show of it. And he's like, we don't want to do this. Right? This, is a, this is essentially, it's an internal discussion. Let's discuss it internally. All right? uh, and when you do theology, you should, appropriate, you should a, a, approach it appropriately with holiness and seriousness. Using the analogy of, um, at, the very, at the very beginning, the first thing in the, in the second letter, is the analogy of, of, of Moses or in the people approaching God at Mount Sinai. All right? Who you are depends on or will determine how close you can get. All right. Are you are you wicked and not interested really in the doctrine of the Trinity? You better stay away from the mountain or God will strike you dead. All right. Are you holy? Then come up the mountain, but maybe not all the way. Are you Moses? Okay, you can come up all the way. All right. And so take it seriously and take it in a holy manner. All right. When he does get into the doctrine of God, the first thing he's going to start with is really talking about the nature of God. Now, when you think about the doctrine of the Trinity, um, nobody really debates. Right? If, you're, if you're going to believe in some doctrine of, of God, you're not going to debate the fact that God exists. Right? So, the doctrine of the Trinity is usually a discussion about how the Son relates to the Father and how the Spirit relates to the Father. Generally speaking, the Father is just kind of assumed. All right. Um, the Arians don't deny that there is a God the Father, for example. Right? They're like, yes, there is a God the Father. And then they would say, and Jesus the Son is a created being. All right? This is, of course, not what Gregory believes. So the Father is there. All right? But he does talk about some things to keep in mind about the nature of the Father. And we'll go with the same pictures as before. If we think about the Father, okay, which we'll just represent with an F because we will not draw a picture of the Father. That is inappropriate. What can we know about the Father? All right. Well, the Father reveals things to us. We know this from the Scriptures. He reveals things through nature. We can see various attributes of the Father. But can we really see the Father? Can we see His nature? Can we really understand what He's made of, if you want to use those terms? And what Gregory says is the answer is no. Ultimately, God is extremely distant and different from you. You cannot, and he cannot, understand God in his very nature. And if we think of the distance between God and man, all right? So there's God, and here's man, okay? Very far, all right? We are of a great distance from God. We cannot see him. Our corporeality, all right? gets in the way. Our limited minds gets in the way. We cannot ultimately understand and know God in and of himself. All we have is what he reveals to us, either through the prophets, whom Gregory calls the luckiest men alive, all right, or through nature and things like that. But what about the angels? Can the angels understand God in his full essence? And ultimately the answer is no. In fact, the angels are if you think on the uh, dividing line of created and uncreated, they're on the created side. And they themselves do not fully understand God. They themselves cannot see God in His true nature. All right? 
So really, they're closer to us. Do they understand God better than we do? Most likely. All right? At least until revelation happens. Because we also know from the scriptures that uh, there are things that even the angels want to know about God. All right? That is a note within the New Testament. But because they're on the more spiritual side, maybe they do understand things more than we do. But still, they're missing a lot too. God, as a being is utterly distinct from all things that are created, which means we ultimately must live with the fact that there is a lot of mystery there. The other thing we talked about is, if we think about God in relation to things, we have to think in terms of God in relation to time. Okay, God exists outside of time. God exists outside of space. And so when you're discussing the doctrine of the Trinity, all right, this is going to come into play. And in the second and third orations, he spends a lot of time talking about the relationship of the Spirit and the Son to the Father. All right, and the fourth oration as well, which we'll be discussing some of today. So, ultimately, what is the Trinity? It's saying that... God, ex- God exists, essentially, with one substance, if you want to use that term. Okay? Or you could also say one essence. Okay? And then three persons. What's the relationship between the persons? There's the sun. Okay. What is the relationship between the Son and the Father? The Son is begotten. Okay? Not created. He is begotten. And one thing that Gregory talks about, as an analogy, of course, if you think about Adam. Here's Adam. Now, was Adam, um, did he have his beginning in a different way than you and I did? Yes. He was... He was He was created in a unique way, right? He was the first man. He was formed, all right? When Adam and, of course, Eve have three kids, okay? They are begotten, all right? And when they are begotten, they are begotten of the same nature, all right? They are all humans, all right? In other words, so when God, when the Father begets the Son, He begets Him, of the same exact nature of himself. He is not a created thing like Adam. Adam, all right, and if you think about like David being begotten by God, this is a metaphor, not reality, all right? David was actually birthed from his parents, all right? When it talks about him as king, all right, being begotten, then this is really talking about him as being adopted, essentially, all right? Not so with the son. Alright, the Son is begotten of the Father. At what time, and Gregory talks about this, at what time was the Son begotten of the Father? And the answer is, wrong question. Alright? Because God begot the Son outside of time and space. Alright? So, eternally begotten of the Father. Okay? Before things exist, before there is time, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And then, what's the third person of the Trinity? 
third person of the Trinity is the Spirit. All right? Is the Spirit begotten of the Father? No. He makes, talks about this quite a bit. How do you describe the relationship between the Son and the Father? It's Father-Son. These are relational terms. The Son is begotten. The Spirit is not begotten of the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. And when he uses his, this language, he's just using the language from John. All right? he's, just, he's pulling from the New Testament. As he is for the beginning of the Son. All right? The Son is begotten of the Father. The only begotten of the Father. The Spirit does not begotten. He is proceeding. And at what time does the Spirit proceed from the Father eternally? Wrong question. You can't think in terms of time. All right? Can't think in terms of time. Now, when does time become relevant all right, for a member of the Trinity? The God exists, the Father exists eternally outside of time. However, there is a time where one member of the Trinity enters a body. All right? Begotten of the Father eternally, begotten of a woman in time. And so the Son, all right, the Son comes into time as a man. Now, the language he uses there is this term. When it talks about manhood, all right, uses the word assume. What does the word assume mean? In general context, not necessarily specifically here. Whenever we use the word assume, what do we mean? Anybody? To take on something. And usually we think of it as a mental activity. You know, I assume that your facial hair was scratchy, and so therefore you shaved. Right? Uh, I'm, I'm putting this, this thought is, I'm putting it on, in a sense, right? Um, am, I, am I right? Yes. Okay, great. It was a good assumption. Um, I've had facial hair. It's scratchy sometimes. Sweet. Um, that's not what we mean here. And if I might quote from Gregory, all right, when he talks about the sun, he says, the sun remained what he was and assumed what he was not, meaning he took upon himself what he was not eternally beforehand, which is manhood. All right? But he stayed what he was, but he assumed what he was not. So this is not a mental assumption. All right? This is a, what you said, this is a taking on. All right? He took manhood onto himself. Okay? That's basically what we've discussed so far, leaving out lots of things. All right, but those are the, the, main, the main points, some of which will be very relevant today. So, um, then, you know, the five orations, right? These are orations 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, all right? He did a lot of orations. He was a Lots of preaching. These, those are just happen to be these particular orations. Today we're going to discuss Oration 30, which is the second one on the doctrine of the Son. This particular oration is almost entirely question-response. Ten of them, specifically. This is what these particular heretics say. This is how I respond to it. 
essentially, and along the way teaching more things about the doctrine of the Trinity. That goes that way throughout the whole oration until the last few pages. And uh, Lord willing, we'll discuss the last few pages next Lord's Day. Uh, we're going to talk about three of the arguments, if we have time today. And let's start with uh, Mark 3.32. So if you would, go there. So he's, he's responding to, excuse me, Mark 13. Did I say 3? All right, Mark 13. That would have been super confusing. Mark 13, 32. A lot of the people he was responding to, which was not Arians, though they would have done the same thing. This is a slightly different group called the Anomians. Mark 13, 32, you see, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows... And this is talking about um, the coming of the Son of Man. Right? Uh, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, I've asked, I've read this and pondered myself, how can this possibly work? Right? Um, if Jesus is God, all right, if the Son is truly God, uh, and if the Son is, is the wisdom of God, all right, how can he not know this? All right? And so people will approach the doctrine of the Trinity. Gregory, they would mention this is, you know, this is a verse Gregory brought up. They were saying it then. All right. How can this be true? All right. Or turn to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5. We discussed this some last time, because in the last oration he mentioned the same principle, but it's a, it's a principle that he's going to use in this particular case. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek well this does raise questions right uh, although he was a son, he learned obedience. What would it mean for the wisdom of God to learn obedience? All right. And what would it also mean for him to be made perfect? All right. And as was he discussed, um, as we discussed last time, all right. One of Gregory's approaches to this, and this is ours as well. We've we've used this before, though maybe not said it this way. His general principle is this: the greater things said about the Son are referring to his deity. And the lesser things said about the Son are referring to his humanity. All right? That's the basic distinction there. And he uses this a lot. What do we mean by that? All right? Well, essentially, when the Son, who is the wisdom of God, who would know all of these things, all right, assumed the part of a man, all right, the Son voluntarily limited himself, essentially. All right? And so when you think about learning obedience, we're not talking about the Son as begotten from the Father for eternally, 
We are, but we're, we're not thinking about it in terms of that. We're thinking of the Son, the man. Now, the fact that these scriptures exist, all right, is going to then lead to a lot more discussion after Gregory, all right, and you're going to lead to the next ecumenical council, which is going to be very much around the nature of, okay, if there is the Christ and he is truly God, but he is also truly man, how does that work together? But still, Gregory is already having to deal with this before that council comes along and talks about it. So how does he talk about it? When you see stuff like, like this, this is not the fact that the eternal wisdom of God lacks information. No, he limited himself. All right? And it's not that he had to learn and practice obedience. No. When he took the form of a man, he truly became a man. And that if he didn't have to learn obedience, and this is the point of Hebrews, right? If he didn't learn obedience, then he really wouldn't be a man. Because that's a part of being human. He took on all it is to be human, and part of that means learning. All right? And so, therefore, this is how you solve a lot of these conundrums. It's just, a lot of it's just talking about Jesus incarnate. Yes? Would it be accurate to, um, or in other words, to say yes, he limits himself, uh, he emptied himself? Would that be accurate to say as well? Right. And so, in, and this is referring to Philippians chapter 2, right? Let's go ahead and turn there. I actually don't recall if, um, if Gregory himself mentions this within this context, but yes. Philippians chapter 2, if you would. It's, it's in the context of talking about humility. All right? Why should we be humble? All right? why, should we, um, why should we love each other? All right? Well, we have, we have Christ as an example of this, who humbled himself. In verse 5 of chapter 2 of Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality of God um, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And this is the assumption, right? Taking the form, assuming the things of a man, right? And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, he does actually talk about that, because there's a separate question about how, what does it mean for Christ to be exalted if he's an internal part of the Trinity? That's a question in this letter that we're not going through today. But yes, this particular passage is, is very relevant. So there's a lot in the scriptures that this is the way you approach them. All right? You have to think through, because Christ is eternally... God. But he is also a man, starting at one point and then eternally forward. And when this happened, all right, he assumed manhood, all right, human, he assumed humanhood, all right, and went through what we all go through, except perfectly, except without sin. Yeah. We would assume that means like basic human skills. Yes. Two plus two equals four. Yes. It's learning how to read, learning how to do things that humans kind of learn slowly at first and then take off. Yeah. He's fully human. He he emptied himself. 
And something that does come up in Gregory is, as, as we've discussed, is, is, a, is a major point in the book of Hebrews. What the Christ does not assume, he does not heal. All right? What he does not of man take on, he, he does not heal. That's why it is necessary, all right, in a proper doctrine of the Trinity, to say that Jesus wasn't fully God and semi-human. That doesn't work, all right? That's not what the Hebrew says, all right? Doesn't work. What he, he only heals what he assumes, and he took all of mankind on himself, and therefore he can heal all of it. Yeah. In lots of different ways. Yeah, because there's lots of lots of ways you can get something wrong. One way you can get something right. Nature of things. Another argument, if you would, turn to John chapter five. And this one's a, I, I think is a simple one. I, I I don't know that you could make this mistake seem silly, uh, but apparently some did. And he takes the time to correct it, which is, you know, good of him. And so they would look at John 5, verse 19. And they'd go, this doesn't seem quite right. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And they point out, what do you mean the Son can't do something? God can do anything. Alright? If the Son can't do something, then the Son's not God. Alright? It's a silly argument. Alright? I mean, it's a decent argument in some contexts. Alright? But in this particular case, it's a silly argument. And so Gregory takes them to task. He's like, okay. The word cannot. What does this mean? Alright? It actually has a lot of different meanings. Like, for example, if you turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Verse 4. So he, he lays these out. I'm not going to lay them all out, but I'm going to lay some of them out. He's like, okay, guys, learn how to read. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? All right. This is what they're trying to say. And that it, it is a valid use of the word cannot. Nicodemus is like, this is not natural. A man cannot go back into his mother's womb. All right. So that, the words do have that meaning. And that's one of those cases, all right? Now, can God cause someone to have a new birth? Sure, God can do anything. But Nicodemus is like, can't do this. And so, and, and, and so you know, Gregory's like, valid meaning, not here. Okay? Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Here's another good one. Matthew 5, 14. You see the different use of cannot here? All right. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Gregory's like, yeah, it can. If that hill is on the other side of a mountain, between you and that hill, that city is hidden. That's not what it means. <laughs> it's setting up a general rule. 
general rule, right? You're walking, you put a city on top of a hill, you can't hide the thing. It's right there on top of the hill, all right? It's not that there's no exceptions. It's just, come on, guys. Or Matthew 9, verse 15. Matthew 9.15, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Yes, they can. It just doesn't make any sense. It's not morally appropriate. All right? This is a, can they do this? Well, you don't. It's not morally appropriate to do so. Okay? So that's another one. Or, Matthew chapter 13. I mean, one thing that Gregory does is he's just using Scripture constantly. It's, uh, it's exhausting sometimes. It's just you know, looking up all the things. You're like, okay. In philosophy, well, since Wittgenstein, this is called language things. And he yeah. clear, you have to clear this, these off the table because they're not the real issue. Yes. And that's what he's doing here way before Wittgenstein. Uh, Matthew 13, uh, 58. All right. So this is talking about Jesus. He's rejected in Nazareth. All right. Um, he goes to Nazareth. They had all sorts, you know, verse 57, and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. All right. This is talking about a causal relationship. He did not want to. Right? Can God do anything He wants? Yes, He can. God chose not to because of their unbelief. As you will often see in the Scriptures, miracles and unbelief are tied together. All right? Sometimes miracles will happen to create belief, right? but often it's because of belief that they happen. That's very much a norm, and that's what he's talking about here. This is not because the Son is limited. It's He chooses not to, in this case, because they are full of unbelief. What's going on here? Now turn to John chapter 16. And essentially, the way he's going to go about this is you're just missing the entire point, essentially, is where he's going to go with this. And he's right. If you go, for example, to John 16, verse 15... Something very similar to what was said in John John 5. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Right? All what, is ha- all what the Father has is mine. We are totally united. Or John chapter 17, verse 10. Talking to God, the Father, all mine or yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but you are in the world, and I am coming to to you. Holy Father, keep them in my name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so, if you read John 5.19, uh, we can go back there, alright? If you read John 5.19, and you're like, explain this, right? Explain this. He can't do anything all right, unless he sees the Father doing it. He's like, they're one. 
They have, you, they have the same will, a united will in all things. All right? They share all things. They are united. This is not the argument you think it is. It's actually the opposite of what you say. All right? This is, the, this is a good argument for the Trinity, not against. Because in the Gospel of John, they are united. And if you go to the next chapter, John 6, 38... For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All right? United. Heretics. Use words better. All right? That's what he's saying. Now let's turn to the book of Proverbs. This was actually the argument he started with in this letter, and I didn't want to start off disagreeing with Gregory, so I put it last. Alright. Now, this one is an interesting one. And uh, if you've read about the Arian debates, you'll totally see this one as well. So this is not a unique argument. Uh, Proverbs chapter 8, if I didn't say the chapter. This is not a unique argument in this particular context. It's a, a fairly common one in the Trinitarian debates. Okay. Chapter 8 is about wisdom. All right? Wisdom personified. Jesus. Now, the thing he focuses in on is Proverbs 8.22. Now, depending on your translation, you will see something different here. What do you all have as Proverbs 8.22? Okay, KJV. ESV has something very similar. Who has any, something different? Anybody? The note on ESV I have says, or father, and the Septuagint says created. Okay, very good. Thank you. If you read, for example, the Net Bible, they have created here. All right? Uh, and they have a note, and they discuss it. It's actually a really good note. All right? So, now what Mike said... Septuagint. All right, this one's actually key. All right, now somebody remind me. What's Septuagint again? All right, Septuagint. All right, is the Greek word for seventy? Correct. Uh, it is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. All right. Now, Gregory never talks about Hebrew at all in any of these orations. I don't even know if he knew Hebrew. Totally uh, ignorance. He might have known it, but he does not talk about it. And this would be a very appropriate place to talk about it. So Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He used the Septuagint, all right? And a lot of the heretics were Greek speakers and Greek readers. And so they also used the Septuagint. And they go here and they go, wait a minute. This says wisdom was created. Now, if you think the Son is wisdom, and we do think that. If you think the Son is wisdom... Alright, then you got a problem. Because wisdom is created, the sun was created. This is against your argument that the sun was begotten. How do you handle this? Well, Gregory's like, well, one thing we could do is we could say the sun is not wisdom, but we're not going to do that. One thing we could do is we could blame this 
on Solomon. Because, as we know, Solomon fell into idolatry late in life. We could do that. We're not going to do that either. All right? Not, not, not valid. Not valid when it comes to, to, for Gregory. He's like, no. We're going to say this is fully inspired and not wrong. And we're going to say this is truly Jesus. All right. So, how do we handle that? All right. Let's read on. So, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. All right. If you're the ESV. All right. But let's just go with the created because that's what Gregory was reading himself. All right. The first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Right? So, in other words, before we go on, according to this account, where does wisdom come into the picture? Right? It's before creation. So, wisdom... Alright? Wisdom is an eternal thing based on what it's discussing because wisdom was before time because wisdom was used to create time and matter which is also what the New Testament says anyway we'll continue before the mountains had been shaped before the hills I was begotten before he made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world Well, what is it? Was wisdom created by God? Or was wisdom begotten by God? Because for Gregory, those are extremely different things. Right? His whole argument, he's talked about a lot, has been the reason this works this way, the reason he is of the same nature, is because he was begotten, not created. What do you do with this that says he was created, but also... He was begotten. Not the same verse. You just got to keep reading. All right? How does that work? The way Gregory answers this is the same principle we had before. Okay? Created. Begotten. What's this talking about? This is not, to me, a satisfying answer at all. But um, this is his argument. All right? This is talking about his incarnation. And this is talking about his eternal Godhood. Alright? I don't buy the argument. And here's essentially why. Alright? If you look back at 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Alright? The incarnation was not at the beginning of his work. So I don't think the argument can work. It's clever. But I don't think it could work. So what is the answer? Alright? I think, ultimately, well, Gregory's problem is a translation problem. He's reading the Septuagint. And Septuagint, as a translation, as all translations, are wrong sometimes. And this is just a, a, a sus translation. Alright? This is also why I don't think it's a good idea, like the Net Bible, to actually translate it as create. Though it's good to have it in a note. Because... I mean, this this thing has been an object of discussion for the last at least 1,600 years, all right? So it's good to have it as a note, so that's great. 
you've got the ESV and the KJV and a lot of other translations go something like, as we said, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. This is not the common Hebrew word for creating. All right? When it says, in the beginning God's created the heaven and the earth, this is not that word. All right? Uh, this is a different word. And it has a wider range of meaning. It could mean establish. It can mean purchase. It can mean possess. It can mean a wide variety of things. And so I think ultimately that's the answer. He's not trying to say, this is the, proverb, the proverbialist here is not trying to say that wisdom was a created thing. Because uh, that's not actually really even required by the text. It's just kind of what you're stuck with if you're reading the Septuagint. Or if you're only reading an English translation that has that. You're just going to be stuck with it. And you're going to be like, how do I fit that in? Well, the word has a wide range of meaning and is not the normal word for create. And so this is actually not even a problem. It's only an apparent problem. And so, I mean, I think Gregory's right, just not for the reason he says, essentially. But I think that's just, just a function of how translations work. You know, uh, you know, Edward said, I think a few weeks ago, that we know more now than most people in history have known about the ancient world. All right. Now, if you were Luke and you were traveling with Paul, would you know more about Paul's travels than we would? Well, absolutely, because he was with him. All right. You fast forward 150 years, all right, or 200 years, there's a whole lot you're going to know less about that time than what we know right now. All right. If you fast forward, you know, a good 300 years to Gregory, who may not have read Hebrew. Well, you know what? We have a lot of people reading Hebrew these days and writing commentary and thinking about such things. We have access to resources that Gregory did not have. And of course, he has access to some things that we don't have too. So it goes both ways. But overall, as you mentioned a few weeks ago, we're in good shape here. We can can deal with certain things better than, than the ancients could. Though I still want a time machine to go back and see some things myself. Hmm. So those are the three ar- three of the arguments that are in uh, this particular oration, um, and that would be that would be the fourth oration. If you want to buy the book or find it online, um, at the very end of the or- oration, this is what we'll discuss next Lord's Day, Lord willing. He goes to talk about the titles of God in the Bible. And he subdivides them in various ways. Uh, we're going to focus on the titles of Christ. Because he goes through them and says, here's one title, this is what it means. Here's one title, here's what it means. It's, it's, it's interesting, it's deep, it's beneficial. And so, that's the, the current plan. Uh, any questions about any of these things before we dismiss today? Yeah. Not really a question, but more a statement about the, the wisdom. Mm-hmm. If Wisdom, I don't believe that God created his attributes. I think he just is. So he didn't have mm-hmm. to create his eternality. Mm-hmm. So if wisdom is an attribute of God, wouldn't it follow that wisdom is eternal, not created? I think essentially yes, right? Um, yes. If it's an attribute, right? But we know it's more than an attribute. It's, it's actually a full person, right? But yeah.
any other comments or Some questions? Of the ones I've heard before related to Jesus being tempted, mm-hmm. and then other passages saying God cannot be tempted. It's like, well, which is it? And I think this apply that pattern, and no problem. Yeah. Jesus had to be tempted because he took on humanity. To not be tempted is to not be human. So yeah, same, it's same answer. So emphatic, you know, on the other side. God doesn't tempt, he cannot be tempted. Mm-hmm. But that's crucial that Jesus was tempted Yeah. passed the test. Yeah, and on some of these, right, you see this and you go, how does this work? Because some of these aren't really explained. That one in particular, how does this work? Well, that one is actually explained and is a major point in the New Testament, right? So, yeah. Here's the explanation. What are we talking about? Son eternal or son incarnate? Same person, but now same as he was, but now he has taken on or assumed things that he was not. But now is, or is, or is something he says often. God that was impassable become passable for us, if you know that term. God who is unchanging becomes changing for us. Yeah. Um, earlier, I asked you about you know would um, MTV be the substitute for limiting, and the reason I did so was mm-hmm. because. Um, in Greek, the word empty is kinosis. Kinosis, kinosis. yeah. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the, there's a, something, you know, called the doctrine of the canonic Christ, where people mm-hmm. say, yes, Christ, and they go far beyond, you know, the usual scripture says Christ emptied himself. They would say Christ emptied himself of everything, including his divinity, and became completely human, which is also a heresy. Yes. And Gregory doesn't talk about it in quite those terms, but in one of the arguments... He deals with that basic notion and is like, okay, even as a man, I mean, you see these terms about him as a man, but there's also, when he's a man, statements are made about him that are utterly inappropriate for a man, right? That are only appropriate for God. And so he's like, you're going to have to, you're, you're going to have to explain this, all right? Unless you want to throw everything out entirely, all right, and they didn't, all right, when he's talking about these heretics, all right, he's talking about them, they they believe in a God, and they believe in Christ, they just don't think he's of the same substance of God, and he's like, if you're going to say he emptied all this stuff, how do you explain all these scriptures? You can't, you've got to keep them both in, all right, it even goes to one where he's like, you, if you really follow this line of argument, if you use the book of Baruch, which we wouldn't because we don't use the Apocrypha, then you can argue that actually the Father doesn't even exist. It's only the Son. Is, but which is absurd. And so he moves on. All right? um, so yeah, he, he talks about that because that is, well, very relevant for his discussion. Though I don't think he ever uses, or I don't remember him using the very first part of that section we were reading, uh, the emptying. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Notions. I, I really do recommend you read it. I mean, it's not an easy read. All right, it's 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 uh, fun. It's complicated, but it's it's very interesting.
Okay, let's let's be dismissed for today. Um, if you have any questions during the week, you can shoot me an email. Of course, we can always uh, discuss next Lord's Day. So let's pray. Um, Bill, will you please pray for us? Uh, we pray that you'd help us. Um, we understand that our brains are not capable of completely understanding this. And we know that you're high and lifted up. And that you bless the earth through Jesus and through the Spirit. And we thank you for that. And we pray that you'd help us, Lord, that we would seek to understand what can be known, what you've revealed to us and that we wouldn't be prideful either. We, we're completely lost and in the dark if you don't open our understanding. Bless us as we worship. Help our brother as he preaches. Speak to us, Lord, through the prayer of Jesus.